All right. Right now, I'm going to invite up Pastor Erin. She's just going to share briefly about the Emmaus Retreat. Um, you know, a little bit background about the retreat is that um, it's something that we have every semester. Once a semester, we have a retreat. And normally, uh, in the springtime, we call it uh, ignition. Um, but for some reason, this semester in particular, we just really felt like God was going to do something very new. And uh, we're like, you know, we got to change the name. And um, we had no idea who the speakers were going to be. We had no idea what it was going to be about. We kind of didn't know anything at all. And uh, we kind of got together, my staff and myself, and God just said it's going to be 180. It's just going to be called 180. <laughs> and um, uh, eventually it turned into where um, Matt Walker, myself, and Pastor Marcus were going to be the speakers. And it's the first time we did multiple speakers like that as well. And um, it was just powerful. It was just really, really, really good. I mean, I wish I could tell you guys more in depth about what happened, but some of these are really personal stories to these students. So um, make sure you guys just talk to them after and ask them how what they went through. But just a general gist, we saw a lot of students who were um, struggling with God in general and their relationship, very distant, um, just running into the arms of Christ at this retreat. Uh, we saw students get completely baptized in the spirit for the first time. Uh, speaking in tongues. Now, I think somebody went into the throne room. Like, it was just crazy. Um, somebody saw the hand of God just reach down. Like, like the hand of God just come and reach down for him. Just to pull him out. And he just got that vision in the middle of just praying. Um, we saw just so many students. Also, there was a seminar on forgiveness. And we just saw so much deliverance in terms of people finally letting things go. And you could just tell after that had happened, so many people were, their, their faces were changed. And there was a, a shiny, like everybody got all good looking. <laughs> it's better than like a facial. Like seriously, it's better than a makeover. When you just get bombed by God's grace, like all of a sudden you're like, oh. And um, y'all looking real good right now, seriously. Um, yeah, so there was a lot of deep um, inner healing, a lot of deep work that God was doing um, throughout this retreat. And uh, just stories upon stories upon stories. Seriously, the staff was just blown away as well. We were able to meet each night. And seriously, our volunteer staffs, can you guys just raise your hand real quick? Man. They killed it. They killed it. They went out and they led these small groups um, with such a father's heart. Um, they really loved on these kids just like, as if they knew them. And so, I mean, as if they knew them throughout the whole semester. And some of them they met for the first time this weekend. And so they did an amazing job as well. Um, and the speakers were pretty okay too. No, I mean, all glory to God. No, I'm playing. No, <laughs> no seriously, no. The speakers did a wonderful job. And um, I just um, thought that what I sensed was there was just family that was being built. Yeah, people are able to finally just be real with one another and um, just share honestly, like, this is what's tough, you know, and this is what's hard, and this is what I've been going through, and this is what God has done. And just to see the level of in intimacy that was established at this retreat was truly, truly amazing. My mind is drawing blank. I feel like there's so many stories to tell, but 
Yeah, just ask me later and ask the students for sure so they can tell you um, on their own. But was it good, you guys? I like how it's the staff that's like. <laughs> no, but it was amazing. So thank you so much for your prayers. We know that you guys were praying for us throughout the time. So thank you, family. Thank you, Pastor Aaron, for sharing that. Look what I got right here. I just wanted to, just wanted to, uh, just show y'all. Thank you, Peter. Um, yeah, I just want to thank everyone who contributed. There's about 10 people that contributed for this gift. Just want to thank you guys for the iPad. Finally got it. Uh, I think there's several people trying to get it right now, but it's sold out in Korea. Uh, but yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, I didn't think I'd be this impressed, but uh, I haven't gotten really a chance to play with it too much. But the little bit of time that I did spend, it was, it's just been amazing. It's an awesome product. Praise the Lord. <laughs> uh, I just want to share a couple testimonies before I begin my message. And um, one is from Beijing. Our New Zealand brother, David O, oh, uh, is right now studying Chinese in Beijing. And he's been listening to our podcast in his room. And his roommate started to eavesdrop. His non-Christian roommate started to eavesdrop on the podcast. And it just really sparked a lot of conversation between them about God. And I guess his roommate thinks, thinks that I'm pretty funny. So he kept listening, and David wrote me uh, like a week or two ago. He said, good news. My roommate has started his journey with the Lord. He's, he still has got a lot of questions, and he, but he now believes, so he's willing to search and find the deep secrets of God. Your sermons and Marcus and Danny's Friday Fire sermon were great. It opened up a doorway to share the power of God and get some good, solid, factual food about Jesus into him. Anyway, just wanted to say thank you and that my roommate cannot wait to come to New Philly after the semester here. David. Let's just praise the Lord for... Uh... Yeah, praise God. Yeah, we just, we just celebrate with you, David. And uh, praise the Lord. We're looking forward to meeting you and your roommate when you guys come. Uh, I also have another testimony. Um, before I share this one, I just want to sum up a testimony that we, I've already shared before. It's about Rona's mom. Uh, a few weeks ago, about a month ago, Rona's mom, they got a call that Rona's mom was having the symptoms of a brain aneurysm. And she had struggled through some of these symptoms once before. And so... She had an aneurysm before, and so she was really scared that uh, the aneurysm, you know, oftentimes aneurysm has a very high fatality rate. You die. And so Rona, when she heard the news, uh, she told Aaron and myself and wanted to try to book a ticket right there on that day to try to fly back to America to be with her mom. Uh, I took some time to pray, just felt prompted just to let them, uh, let Rona and Aaron know maybe not to buy the ticket right away. And just to begin to contend in prayer. 
And so we did. We started to really pray, and we waited on buying that airline ticket. And then on that Sunday, uh, we prayed for her at Sunday Swim, and all the uh, members and leaders of the church, we really cried out on her behalf. Well, that following week, all the symptoms disappeared off of Rona's mom. And so the doctors were just baffled at what took place, and they completely canceled hospitalization, surgery, whatever they were concerned about. They were able to just completely drop because Rona's mom's completely healed. So we praise the Lord for that. And uh, after that happened to Rona's mom, or, or a few weeks later, around March 30th, I got an email from my good friend Suji. She was a student at Juilliard, and we used to serve together on the leadership of KCCC, a college ministry in New York City. And she asked me to pray for her because she had come to Korea with her husband and her baby to visit her parents. But the moment that she landed in Korea, her mom not just had the symptoms, but she had a brain hemorrhage. So a blood vessel in her brain popped. And it was just, it just completely wrecked her. And she was uh, immediately brought into the hospital and scheduled in for surgery. So conditions were really looking really bad. And so I got an email on March 30th uh, saying uh, it was addressed to her home church back in New Jersey. It says, Dear Joy Christian Fellowship family, let's lift up our voices together on behalf of our sister Suji's mother. We desperately need your prayer right now. Suji's mother is about to undergo brain surgery. She has suffered brain hemorrhage. Could you please pray now and throughout the week for a good outcome and complete recovery? Uh, In the email, Suji also asked uh, not only for her home church in New Jersey, but she also asked specifically that I pray for her. She's a good friend of mine. She knew that our church is a praying church. And so, you know, um, her mom had really severe symptoms. She was hospitalized. She couldn't, I believe she couldn't walk. She couldn't talk. Uh, The doctor said if she recovered, she'd be paralyzed. Uh, And actually, the doctors were saying that she only had a few, uh, few days or weeks to live. And so the, the condition was really bad. I mean, it looked like really bleak. And so my heart broke on that day, and I just started to pray. And just a few days later, we were at the retreat on April 30th. Suji contacted me on the morning, that Sunday morning, April 30th, at the retreat uh, through a text message. And she said, um, she just asking us to pray. She was asking me to pray for her mom. And so I replied back to her text message and told her about Rona's mom's testimony. And how many of you guys know that the testimony of the saints is powerful? And that testimony is not just a record of what God's done in the past. It is a prophecy about what God can do again in the future. And we need to learn how to use the testimonies and use them as prophecy to help people who are in similar situations. So I just gave her a text message saying we had a a mom of one of our church members. Uh, She got completely healed. And uh, we're going to pray for you at Sunday Swim here at the retreat. And she wrote back, she said, thanks for praying. Next few days are crucial. We're praying for a miracle that God will heal her completely from her pain. Yeah, and so uh, when she saw her mom in so much torment, I think her greatest aim was just for the pain to end. You know, Uh, but, you know, we were going for much more than that. You know, we, we 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 didn't want just the pain to get minimized. You know, Tylenol can help do that, but only God can heal a brain a hemorrhage from being completely, uh, rest- for the person to be completely restored. 
after the retreat, three days later, on April 7th, Suji sent me this text message. She, she said, please lift up my mom in your prayer. She will be going through another surgery today. Thank you. So when I saw this text message, I went immediately into warfare prayer, and I prayed that all the symptoms would be broken off, and I specifically did pray also that her mom wouldn't have to go through another surgery. Because sometimes when you go through brain surgery, the complications of the surgery can actually sometimes be worse than the original symptoms, and it can actually complicate things and lead to an earlier death. So I was just praying that there will be no other surgery. And then a few days later on April 12th, I got this email. Suji wrote, Hi, everyone. Thank you all for your prayers. My mom is much better now. She is recovering quickly right now. It was an answer prayer for all of us. She is perfectly normal, and there are no other symptoms of paralysis. Check this out. She did not need to go through another surgery. So that surgery, I believe, it got canceled. And we believe that it is surely God's healing hands upon her. All her body parts are perfectly normal, and her conscience is clear as before. My uncle, who is a neurologist, said that my mom's quick recovery is surely God's grace. He said that my mom's case is very special. It is amazing to see how God has saved my mom, and not only just saving her, but to restore her perfectly normal as before. In the beginning, the doctors had said 50% chance to live, but now they are telling us, that my mom can go home as early as this week. God has been answering all our prayers, and we are so grateful to experience this perfect provision. Thank you all for your prayer support. My mom couldn't have recovered as quickly without all your prayers. And she quoted Psalm 30. You turn my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. Thank you. In his grace, Suji. Let's just praise the Lord for that amazing healing testimony. Our God is abundant in His goodness. Now, right now, we are contending for another person. She has a brain tumor. She's the personal assistant to the head pastor of our mother church here. Her name is Che Sujung, Che Sujung Jipsanim. And so all throughout last weekend, we've been fasting and praying for her. Last Sunday, Pastor Myung-ho and some of our leaders visited her in the hospital. And actually, when they were looking for her in the hospital room, there were a lot of different patients in the same room. They couldn't find her because she was unrecognizable. I mean, she was just contorted and swollen and just, uh, just in really bad shape. And so they went, and she is conscious but unable to really move freely. And so they took some time to pray for her. And church, I want us to continue to stand on the testimonies of the saints and contend and continue to war on behalf of Chesu Jungisanim. Amen? Yes. Let's continue to keep her in prayer. Uh, God has done it before, and God will do it again. Amen? Yes. Amen. So I just wanted to share those testimonies before we begin and that prayer request. All right, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 22, verse 30. Acts 22, verse 30. We're going to read from Acts 22, verse 30 to chapter 23, verse 5. I'm going to read from the ESV version of the Bible. It says, On the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, 
he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. This is the apostle Paul. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So, it happens. Then Paul says to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, oh, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. All right, so we have this very bizarre story of Paul that a lot of people probably look, uh, overlook it. But I just felt like God wanted us to park here and bring forth a message for you today. We have Paul. He's uh, been bound by the Jews. The Jews are starting riots to try to arrest him and kill him. And he's standing before uh, these Roman uh, authorities, and they bring in the Jewish high priest and the council. And they want to hear the case because in Roman law, you couldn't just execute somebody at will. You need to have a good reason. And so they wanted to hear what these Jewish leaders had to say about what wrongs that Paul had done that deserved death. So Paul gets up and starts to say, brothers, I've lived my life before you in good conscience. In, in good conscience up to this day, while he is in the middle of this, Ananias says, hey, hit him right in the mouth. So one of the Jewish leaders goes, okay. Oh, That's like a back fist right on Paul's mouth. How many of you in here, you've been struck in the mouth hard in the past? You've been struck in the mouth hard. All right, there's like eight of you in here. I've been struck in the mouth several times. Growing up in, in Philadelphia, I mean, the streets, they are not nice to you. And, man, I got into so many fist fights. And one of the key places that urban street fighters love to hit is your mouth. Because if you get a square shot in the mouth, your lips are going to start to bleed. And even though you aren't really that hurt except your lip bleeding, it looks like you're getting jacked up. <laughs> so in, in Philly, what, what, it was all about perception. If you look like you were winning, everybody was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the energy of the crowd would just kind of turn the tide of the fight, even if you were winning up until that point. Anyway, I've been struck several times in the mouth. And let me tell you something right now. It hurts. A lot. That's something about it. There's like this buzz that comes over your whole face. It's like this weird feeling. Your whole face feels like you just got struck. Um, now, if I was here in Paul's situation and I get struck on the mouth, I don't know if I will be able to be this articulate. You get struck in the mouth. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> you who try to uphold the law. Now, contrary to it, you command them to be struck. I wouldn't be that articulate. <laughs> if I got struck in the mouth, I'd be like, oh, sure. <laughs> I would let my fist do the talking. I mean, that would just be my natural. I'm not going to lie. That would, even today, that would be my natural. Don't test me. Because that would probably be my natural reaction. Because I'm still being sanctified, and I'm still learning to govern my spirit. 
And I know clearly that I probably won't be able to articulate myself like Paul does here. But Paul gets struck in the mouth. And he, in my opinion, politely answers the council and the high priest. You know? He politely answers them. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. I think it's a pretty polite response compared to all the things he could be doing. And verse 4 to 5 says, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And then it's really bizarre. Paul just called him a whitewashed wall. And then they say, would you revile God's high priest? And, God's, and then Paul says, oh, wiping off the blood. I know. I know, my brothers. I know he was a high priest. For it is written. You should not revile. You know, like, I, I, it's kind of a bizarre scene, right? Um, and this Bible verse that Paul quotes, you shall not uh, revile, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. It actually comes from Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, uh, where it says, you shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. Now, when I was reading this, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, what are you talking about, Paul? You didn't do anything wrong. And these Jewish priests just struck you in the mouth. Who cares if he's a high priest? You're preaching the gospel and they're trying to, they're trying to oppose you. You're doing good and you're getting struck for it. Their evil outweighs whatever wrong you just did by calling a whitewashed wall. So what are you talking about? What are you quoting this for? Who cares? They're doing evil against you, Paul. Isn't that, doesn't that overshadow whatever other parts of the God, word of God says about you speaking, you know, reviling a, a spiritual leader? But it's very noteworthy what Paul has done here. Paul, he knows the word of God and he knows it very well. And he knew that the word of God forbids us from cursing or reviling spiritual leaders. Even when those leaders are in the wrong. He knew that the word of God forbids that kind of reviling. In 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 22, King David, speaking by the Spirit of God, says, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. I want you to say that. Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. David, when he was a young man, he fought Goliath, the giant, and he struck Goliath dead and cut off his head. After this great victory, King Saul, who was the king at that time of Israel, he recruited David into his staff. And so David began to come, and David would play the harp for, for Saul. David, uh, you see, what was happening was because of Saul's uh, disobedience to the word and command that God had given him. The Bible says that God had allowed an evil spirit to torment Saul. So Saul is like demonized. He's got demon spirits. Whenever he's trying to go to sleep, 
Like he got demon spirits like hovering over his bedroom. He's got demon spirits under his bed. Like he, he's just he's just tormented constantly. And whenever David would come and play his harp, all those demons would flee. And he would just feel the peace of God. And so David was serving this way. And then later on, David went to command the armies of Israel. Because David was so anointed by the Holy Spirit and the power, the supernatural power of God would come upon David. He would go into battle and he would come out unscathed. He would slaughter tens of thousands of the Philistines and he would just come out unscathed. And so the women of the town began to sing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And when people started to sing this way about David, Saul got intensely jealous. And from that day, what Saul did was whenever David would be playing the harp, like the equivalent of a guitar today, right? Just playing his guitar. Saul would be like, oh, I love that song. I love that. Die, David! <laughs> and throw a spear. But you see, David, man, he is athletic, man. He was quick. He'd be like playing the guitar and whoa! Where was I? <laughs> Lord, you are my shepherd. And he would just keep singing. It was a very difficult situation for David to be in. Saul constantly sought to take David's life. You're not just talking about harming him, cutting off his finger or his ear. You're talking about killing him. Saul, King Saul was trying to kill David. And so it got so bad that David had to run away. So he starts to hide in the caves. He starts to hide among the Philistines, the enemy uh, troops. He starts to just, he starts going out there and starts gathering this ragtag group of, uh, of, uh, of people that were uh, hugely in debt, people that were losers. People, the Bible just said they were just losers. And David took them and made them uh, the, the men of his army. So David just starts to put together like this gang, you know, out, out in, the, in the wilderness. And one, one situation, King Saul comes out to the wilderness in search of David. And Saul, like any good king, had a little too much to drink. And one time, not, not a, lot, a little too much to drink, he drank water. And one time he had to go and take care of his business. So he goes a little bit ways off, right? And he's just um, taking a number two. No, number one. Is it number one? Number one is, uh, yeah, P. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Janae. I was trying to be like very appropriate and pastoral. But yes, he's taking a P. All right. He's taking a leap. And while he's doing his business, David and his men find him. And they're like, what are the chances, David? Look, God is delivering your enemy into your hands. Just go up. And strike him, and he will not know what hit him. And so, and so David's like, now nah, I can't do that. But he, what he does do is he sneaks up to Saul, takes his sword, and he just slices just the, just the edge of his uh, cloak or whatever he was wearing. He just slices the edge of that, takes it, and then he goes and shows his men. When David did that, 
the holy fear of God hit him. And he was so convicted over what he had done because he knew the word of God. He knew that the word of God forbid him from laying a hand on God's anointed. So he came and he fell prostrate before Saul and said, look, I've done an evil thing. When you were taking a leak, I cut off a piece of your garment. I could have killed you, but I didn't. But I still cut off a piece of your garment. Here's your garment. I'm sorry. I've done wrong and evil on your side. And he prostrates himself face down before, before Saul. Now, Saul's got a sword. He's got a spear. I mean, Saul could just kill David right there. But Saul is just so taken aback by David's like submission and repentance that Saul says, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that I've been trying to kill you. You know, you're such a good guy, man. Look at you, man. You didn't even kill me when you had a chance, man. You have no harm toward me. You're such, I'm sorry I'm trying to kill you. Just get up. I'm, not going, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm just going to go home. And then once he gets home, I'm going to kill David. Right? He keeps changing his mind, right? Demonized. Um, but one thing that David never did was he never laid a hand on Saul. Never spoke ill of Saul. As much as he could... He spoke with honor toward God's anointed. You know why? Because he knew that King Saul was anointed with oil by prophet Samuel to be the king over Israel. So he knew that it was forbidden for him to take justice and matters into his own hands. And the thing is, David was anointed as the new king over Israel. David knew that since his teenage years, since his youth... David knew that he was the next king. So as he defeats Goliath, as he comes and plays the harp, as he leads Israel's armies into victory, he's just thinking, any day now, God's going to give me the kingdom. Any day now, King Saul is going is to give me, give me the crown or something like that, you know? He's waiting and waiting. It's not happening. 16 years pass by. Nothing's happening. But, but David patiently waits because he knows that he is not to lay a hand on King Saul. And the irony was, what David was unwilling to do to Saul, Saul was abundantly doing toward David, who was also God's anointed. But in regards to that, God had great patience with Saul. God had great patience with Saul. That even though Saul did all these horrible things, God was patient with him. And it wasn't until Saul, he sought out a mudan. He sought out a medium, a spiritist, a, a fortune teller, a psychic, the witch of Endor. When he sought out this psychic, that's when God said, that's enough. Today, you and your sons will die on the battlefield. And God fulfilled his word, just as he said. But you see, that wasn't God's Plan A for Saul. God was patient with Saul. God had anointed Saul. And God was willing and waiting for Saul to turn from his ways. But Saul never did. And even though he never did. And even though he did immense evil. God was still patient with him. Until God said, that's enough. Then Saul died. His sons died. And eventually there was a struggle for the kingdom. For the throne. And eventually David rose up. As the king of all Israel. Now, 
This applies to each and every one of us. In each of our lives, God appoints leaders to shepherd our soul. God appoints leaders to discipline you, to lead you, to teach you, to guide you into truth. God appoints leaders to shepherd your soul. But the truth of the matter is, just like Saul, leaders also have failures. Leaders have weaknesses. That is the risk that God is more than willing to take when he appoints men and women into places of leadership. And let's not paint just a super clear rosy picture of David either. Because David, once he became the king, he also had a great failure. He was guilty of adultery and lying and murder with Bathsheba. And when these things happen, no matter how you feel about a leader, no matter how badly a leader may be messing up, or how badly a minister is abusing his authority, the word of God says, do not ever lift your hand against them. That is a word that we need to receive with the fear of God in our hearts. Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. Do not ever lift your hand against him or her. Do not harm them. Do not ever speak evil or slander them in any way. For God has made it clear in his word. Touch not my anointed ones. We need to, we need to realize that when a leader messes up, although we may run out of patience very quickly toward that leader, and begin to air out their weaknesses, air out their wrongs, begin to criticize and complain about them. God is not that short with his patience. You see, if the world, if the church, if God dealt with the church according to your measure of patience, we'd be in a bad place. God has great patience for the leaders whom he appoints. When he appoints them, by the way, he knows all about the leader's weaknesses. Still appoints them. He knows about all the things that the leader has to come through in order to be uh, finally raised up as a good character leader. He knows all that. He still appoints them. And along that process of growth, God says, do not touch them. Do not slander them. Do not harm them in any way. We do not determine when a ministry's, when a leader's ministry or his life is to end. Amen? We don't determine that. God does. Now, God does. I do admit, He does determine when it ends. If there is no repentance, there is perpetual violence, perpetual wickedness, there will be things that God holds that leader accountable to, and, and when the time comes, God, God will say, okay, that's it. And God will judge it. God will expose it or God will end that leader's life. Don't think God doesn't do that. God did it with Saul and God continues to do the same today. Just because we're on this side of the cross doesn't mean that God's not gangster. The Bible says to whom much is given, much more is required. He might be patient and waiting for what is required, waiting for you to 
repent, waiting for you to do right. He might be patient in that, but eventually he's going to demand it from you. But praise the Lord that Praise the Lord that the end of someone's ministry or life is not determined by our patience. You know, when I was in college, this is something that my college mentor, Brother Michael, he burned it into my head. He would constantly teach me about it. He'd say, touch not God's anointed. Do his prophets no harm. And he would constantly quote that verse when he would pray. And whenever I wanted to get critical of the head pastor that we were serving under, he would stop me and quote this verse. Whenever I would condescendingly ridicule Benny Hinn or other televangelists on TV, he would constantly quote this verse. Touch not my anointed, do my prophets no harm. And no matter how badly I might be wronged by a spiritual leader, if the leader is anointed by God, Brother Michael would warn me not to say anything critical about that leader. Because it's not about who's hearing your criticism. It's about who's hearing your criticism. Although many people may, you may not blog about it. You may not put it on your Facebook wall. Heaven hears every word that comes out of your mouth. He said that if I am wickedly wronged by a spiritual leader, he said, I need to leave that vengeance up to God. He said that if I leave the leader alone, God will deal with that leader. But as a recipient of God's grace and forgiveness, if I take vengeance into my own hands, then God will deal with me. I don't know what your past church experience has been like. And there are spiritual leaders that abuse their authority. There are spiritual leaders... That are, that are, they have plenty of things that you can criticize. Plenty of things in their personal life that's just really shady. But do not be so hasty in raising your voice or raising your hand toward them. Because heaven is watching what comes forth from our hands and our mouth. Now, personally, I try to submit to this word over the years. But I must admit I find it very difficult. How many of you in here, you have criticized verbally, you have negatively aired out the weaknesses and wrongs of your spiritual leaders? You've ever done that? If you've ever done that, raise your hand. You've ever done that? If you did that this past week, raise your hand. Find you. Punks. Talking about me. All right. Um, I've tried to submit to this and I find it very, very difficult. Whenever someone in authority wrongs me or just rubs me the wrong way, I have a tendency to air it out. Let somebody hear. Yo, yo, I need, I need to tell somebody this. I don't care who it is. It could be an active leader, reserve leader, member. I just start airing it out. This is my immaturity. This is my own lack of sanctification. But I'll air it out. I'll grumble about it. I'll criticize about it. That, that leader, man, that person is so out of touch. That person is filled with a religious spirit. That person, man, that leader, man, they don't, know, they, don't, they don't even read the Bible, I bet. 
Man, when they read the Bible, man, they, they, they're twisting it all around for their own personal interests. And I'll just air it out. That pastor's so dumb. That pastor can't preach. Now, some, some of them, when I say that pastor shouldn't be a pastor, that's a word from the Lord. But the other half of the time, it's from the flesh. I'm just like, man, that pastor shouldn't be a pastor. And I'll just, I'll just very cavalier. I find it very difficult to submit to this word. It's not easy. When I was with Campus Crusade, I had to submit to the word of my campus directors, my leadership, my ministry directors. Uh, It wasn't easy. Because some of the things, like if you left New Philly right now and started getting involved with Campus Crusade ministry, there would be a lot of things that Campus Crusade does that that would just torture you. That you would just completely think, man, this is totally off. And, but... God brought me through seasons where he would, he would say, don't you dare, don't you speak ill of that person. I've appointed him. I've anointed him. Right? And we need to take note of this. Um, God reminds me constantly. Even when I was reading Acts 23, the reason why this is so bizarre is because it is. Paul gets struck in the mouth. And he says, you whitewash war. And then they say, would you revile God's high priest? And he says, oh, it's chill there. I'm, 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 I'm sorry. Give me some tissues. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were the high priest. It's a bizarre scene because this is Paul submitting to the word of God. He takes this word with trembling and fear. And we need to as well. If you do not think that God takes this word seriously, let me share with you two quick stories. I hope I can make it quick. But these two stories, man, they're real interesting. If you don't think that God takes this word seriously anymore, let me just tell you two quick stories. One story is of a gentleman that was coming out to our college ministry a few years ago. He would go in and out, in and out, never was consistent. Then he started to um, follow around sisters Either they were leaders or students of the ministry. And he would just like walk with them. And then the girls would be like, okay, I'm going to go home now. And he would be like, oh, I'm going that way too. And then they would be like, oh, I'm getting on this bus. Oh, that's my bus too. And he would follow them onto the bus. And he would ask for their phone number. And then, and then, and then the girl would be like, oh, I'm really uncomfortable. Give me your phone number. And he'll take, the, he'll take their phone, punch in his number so that his, uh, their number shows up on his phone. And he would get their number. He's just harassing the girls of our ministry. And so Pastor Aaron confronted him because he was under the jurisdiction of Aaron's authority at that time. Aaron confronted him one-on-one. He blew up, got angry, started yelling at Aaron, putting his hands up all up in his in her face. I don't know what he did, but if I was there, I wouldn't have, done, I wouldn't have just stood still. Good thing I didn't see it. But Aaron told me about it later, and I was like, what did, what? He did what? <laughs> oh, man, no, we're not having that. But I calmed down. I read the Bible. <laughs> and I saw that the word of God did not prescribe me to take the course of action that I was devising in my head. And, and so, anyway, we, we confronted him 
with a group of leaders because he wasn't he obviously was not repentant uh, he obviously did not plan to stop this it was going to continue to harass our sisters and we're not going to allow that and so some of the brothers we confronted him and uh i was with a few of my boys and we went up to him <laughs> i took him into the corner and i said young man you know i heard about what's been happening this needs to stop are you going to end this are you going to are, are you through with this are you going to stop and he's like, got all defensive. What are you talking about? Man, F this, blah, 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 blah. So it's like, you know, saying whatever. And, and he kind of put his hands toward his face. Now, I'm from Philly. Anytime hands come up around here, my hands go up. I wasn't going to hit him. But my hands naturally went up. When his went up, mine went slowly up. And then... I kid you not, I kid you not, he was trying to strike me. He was going to do a sucker punch, and I wasn't going out like that. All right. At the same time, I'm thinking, I'm a pastor, I'm a pastor, I'm a pastor, I'm a pastor. <laughs> hey, what ended up happening was, what ended up happening was, he started kind of like getting really rough, so I kind of grabbed his shirt, and I was like, man, calm down, man, calm, calm. You get your hands down, boy. Don't make me lay hands on you. Um, anyway, it started, it started escalating and it was making a big scene. So some of my other brothers, uh, another brother stepped in. And uh, he's like a taekwondo, third degree black belt. A bad idea for him to step in. Because when he stepped in, he, he was like, hey, calm down, calm down. And he was like, man, F you. And he was like, oh, you want to fight with me too? <laughs> we, had to, we had to like break that up. <laughs> Anyway, um, we all calmed down, and I said, all right, brothers, you guys stay here at a distance. I'm just going to take them one-on-one one one and speak to them man-to-man. And if he can't stop, I'm going to ask him never to come back to our church, never to come back to our campus ministry. Hey, Emmaus students, all the ladies the Emmaus students, all right, we pay a heavy price to create an environment of safety. Don't think this stuff doesn't keep going on. We're kinking people out left and right sometimes. We don't want shady characters kind of getting up in there, all right, and trying to lay hands and pray for you when, when we don't even know who they are. We're following you home. We're not going to have that. But anyway, um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm standing with this gentleman one-on-one. I'm calm. I'm calm. My hands are at my side. I've committed to act as a pastor, and I'm talking to him, and I'm reasoning with him, and I say, all right, this needs to stop. This needs to end. I bring the, the girl over, and I say, all right, look, I want you to apologize to her. I want, I want you to say that this is going to end. If it's not going to end, we can't have you at our church. All right? I do all that with him, and he starts, like, just giving me the lip service. Like, all right, all right, okay, I'll do that. I'm thinking, all right, no, you're not. There's no brokenness. There's no repentance. You have no, I'm not going to take a lip service. I'm not taking that. But anyway, I was looking at him, and his eyes could not look at my eyes. His hands were all twitching all over the place. And then he's like wandering around. And all of a sudden, he grabs my neck just like that. And he's like squeezing with all his strength. And I'm like, I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor. And I try with all the peace of God in the world. I just said, Get your hands off me. 
I just looked at him straight in the eye. I said, get your hands off me. And he squeezing, and then he goes, <sighs> he puts his hands to his side, and he starts like, eyes start wandering again. He's, you know, it's obviously something demonic going on. And make a long story short, after that, he started calling, calling uh, Aaron, calling myself, threatening us, saying that they're going to come over. To our, they know where we live. They're going to come over and, and kill us. His mom gets on the phone. His mom is more demonized than he is. He says, She just, man, she was wicked. Deep, like she had like a legion of demons threatening us. Then she, they threatened to come to church service, right, and make a big scene, you know. And and I don't know what they were gonna do. So we had an emergency leaders meeting, and it was out of this incident that we formed membership class. The reason why we felt like we needed membership class is because we couldn't we couldn't tell who's in or who's out. We couldn't tell who do we have responsibility to provide covering for and who's just coming out now and then. And when there's something like this happens and somebody's committing these acts of evil, who do we determine to be in and out? Who do we exercise that authority over? Who do we just kick out on an instant? And who do we have to go through a process in order to remove them from fellowship? So all these thoughts are going through. So our leaders met and God turned this around for good. And we started a membership class that summer. And we started building up this very powerful community that you see here. Anyway, I said make a long story short like 10 times now, right? <laughs> to make a long story short, we were waiting for him. I had my, my leaders waiting for him at the door. And he never showed up. The phone calls were like every other day, every three days, phone calls just dropped. And Aaron and I, to this day, we do not know what happened. To him and his family. It's almost as if he dropped off the face of the earth. He was breaking into the eye house. He used to uh, break into the eye house and rob the eye house. They caught him on CCTV and everything. All right. I mean, if he's still in the city, they will still be seeing stuff like that from him. No word from him ever again. I don't know what happened to him. But I do know that he touched God's anointed. And God wasn't having that. Let me tell you another story. I hope I can make this shorter. <clears throat> oh, man, this, this story actually will go much longer. So I, I, I'm not going to tell the story. This is an intense story. This is ten times more intense than that one. I can't, man. If the Emmaus students want to hear it, I'll tell it. They're just smiling. (laughs) It's my first time. (laughs) Um, All right, I'll I'll tell it, right? Um, Make a long story short, this is what happened. Before we have membership, before we have membership, uh, you know, there was very informal, you know, relationships with all the people who come out consistently. Uh, There was one girl, and this is why you need the covering of a spiritual father. All right. Um, there was a gentleman that we had met on the missions field in India. And this gentleman was very filled with the spirit, very prophetic. But he also had a very dark side that he did not bring into submission. 
There's a dark side that he was not willing to deal with. He's a womanizer. All right. And so he starts to email and, and contact her. And pretty much the gist of it is says, God told me you're my wife. Now check this out. Every lady in here, if any man of God, I don't care how gifted he is. I don't care what a good looking worship leader he is. If any man of God ever says that to you, you submit that to your spiritual father. You don't take that at face value. Because a lot of the times that's not God. But let me tell you what happened to her. She flies out to India on her own. Meets his family, hangs out with them, and then he insists on taking her up to the mountains. Takes her up to the mountains, promises two rooms. Obviously, they didn't, they didn't, they're all out of rooms. So we have to stay in the same room. All right? And, and you, can, you can guess what took place. All right? She was threatened. She was raped. All right? Sexually assaulted, whatever you want to call it. And then she comes back to Korea. We don't know what's going on. We don't have membership. We don't have things like submission. We don't know anything about spiritual fatherhood. We don't know anything about sonship. Those things were new to us. Those things we're still discovering at that time. So she didn't know what to do. So she kept it to herself. And he's constantly threatening her. All right? And so eventually it gets so bad. Uh, and this is after she moves to, back to America. And then she lets us know about the situation. And says that he's threatening to kill, his fa- kill her family and stuff if she, if she tells anyone. Things like that. So she's been keeping it to herself out of fear. She tells me, and I say, oh, no, we need, to, we need to deal with this. I'm not having that. We need to deal with this. So we got our leaders involved. We got his spiritual authorities in India that we have contact with involved. All right? And we started to confront him about it. All right? Because when he was with her, he claimed that he has done it to several girls. And he can do it to any girl he wishes. And so he, he, she needs to just keep it all quiet. Because he's an expert at this. It's pretty much what he was claiming. Right? And he's in seminary. He's a worship leader. We get involved. We start to confront him. We get his uh, pastor involved. We get his, uh, uh, his family involved. And we start to confront him and say, All right, you need to repent. We need to bring you through a process of restoration. You need to submit to this process of restoration. Or, or this is not going to work. All right? And we start getting that involved. And what happened was, when we started taking those steps, I started getting sick. I had this chronic cough for three, four months straight that wouldn't go away. And it affected my ability to pray, affected my ability to preach, affected my ability to praise. It tried to affect it. But by the way, it didn't stop me one Sunday from preaching. God came up here. <laughs> and I kept preaching anyway. But uh, it, was, it was torturous. It was tor- and I took all the medicine I got all the prayer. It just wasn't breaking off. And so Aaron, um, our brother Michael was visiting during that time. And my old college mentor prophesied, there's something, it's a witchcraft attack coming from India. Do you know anything about that, young man? Do you know anything about that, Christian? I'm like, what? (laughs) Witchcraft attack. Is that real? Is that stuff real? Who would do that? Right? And so I'm just praying it through. I start coming against that witchcraft attack. Finally, after three, four months, the coughing stops. I go to Australia and, you know, light it up in Australia and God does all amazing things. I come back and once again, the cough starts up again. 
Aaron gets a vision of that gentleman. And in the vision, the gentleman has like a red vial of blood around his neck. And he's got these evil eyes. And so we interpret that vision to mean that the witchcraft attacks were coming from him, the guy who's involved. So we start praying and breaking it off, breaking it off, breaking it off. Once again, the coughing just won't stop. Goes into the third, into the fourth month. It happened uh, this past autumn, okay? Around, uh, I forget what the exact date, around October, November-ish, the coughing just stopped completely. And then I got an email. And in the email, guess what it said? We are sorry to inform you, but Pastor Christian wanted to let you know what happened. This gentleman that's been involved with all of this, last week he was sitting in front of his computer desk, and he died. No symptoms that warned warned that there was something wrong with him. No real natural cause of death. He just died. Stopped breathing. Heart stopped beating. One moment he's on his computer. Next moment he died. God is gangster. God is more gangster than all the Italian mafia combined. You touch one of his men. And God's not going to just leave that alone. He takes this word seriously. He says, touch not my anointed ones. Now, I'm not saying that it's because he's throwing witchcraft attacks at me that he died. I'm not saying that. I have no idea. I won't know until I get to heaven. But my coughing did end almost the same day that he dropped dead. Don't think God doesn't take this seriously, brothers and sisters. God takes it seriously. We need to take it seriously. Do not touch God's anointed. Do his prophets no harm. But if you go to 1 Chronicles 16 or to Psalm 105, where it's quoted verbatim, in both the contexts, it's actually talking about Jacob's family before they went into Egypt. So Jacob, who was also known as Israel, is talking about his family. And uh, God says over them, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. He says over Jacob's family that word. Now, we are very much like Jacob's family because just as Jacob was chosen, we are God's chosen people today. Amen? Amen. Through Christ, we are God's chosen people. And not only are we to not touch God's anointed ones, those who are in leadership authority, but the Bible also says over us, You are my anointed ones. Each and every one of you, God says, do not touch my anointed one. Do my prophet no harm. Do not touch my anointed one. Do my prophet no harm. Do not touch my anointed one. Do my prophet no harm. God says over each and every one of us, because we are his anointed ones. So this doesn't apply to us just causing harm or mistreatment toward leaders. This also applies to how we behave and treat each other. Amen? When, When somebody wrongs you, it's very important that we forgive. Why? 
not only for your spiritual health, but because if you don't forgive, that bitterness and anger may start to boil up and you might do something harmful for God's anointed. And when you harm God's anointed, you're doing something harmful to yourself. So it not only affects the dynamic of our spiritual leaders, it affects how we treat each other. Without exception, God says over each and every one of you, touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. God watches over each and every one of you. And when someone harms you, God takes note of them. Now, although we read in this word, you shall not revile God nor curse the ruler of your people. Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. Although we just read that, and I said without exception, that applies to each and every one of you. There is one exception that God made. There was one prophet who was born into this world whose very purpose was to come into the world to be harmed. What did it take for us to all become his anointed ones? Well, the answer is real simple. It's because of the anointed one. Jesus was called Jesus Christ. The word Christ in the Greek, Christos, means anointed one. God says, touch not my anointed ones. And then he sent his son into the world, anointed him with the Holy Spirit. And says, son, I send you for the, for the men on that earth to lay hands on you. For them to revile you, spit on you, slap you, punch you. You think it was bad what Paul went through? Got punched in the mouth? Jesus was repeatedly punched, blindfolded. A crown of thorns was fashioned around his head. He received 40 lashes minus one with whips that have bone fragments on it intended to rip the skin and cause internal organ damage. God says, touch not my anointed ones. But for me to call all these people my anointed ones, Son, you must make your way to the cross. For us to have the right to become children of God, the Bible says Christ died for us. We can be called his anointed ones because of the anointed one and what he has done for us on the cross. You see, what essentially happened was God put the fullness of the Holy Spirit on Jesus. Put the anointing of the Holy Spirit, put the Isaiah 61 anointing upon Jesus. And then through the suffering and death of Christ, Jesus' anointing was ringed out and poured out to each and every one of us. We are anointed ones because of the anointed one. Amen? Amen. And what I just want to point out one thing before we close. When Jesus was being harmed, when he was being reviled, when he was being 
touched with violence. When he got up on the cross, he didn't quote First Chronicles 16.22. And look down on all the people and says, Don't you know the word of God says, Touch not my anointed ones? How dare you do this to me? How could you do this to me? He didn't pray that. He prayed, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they're doing. That is the mercy of God. At the same time, the justice and wrath of God was being poured out and displayed. The mercy of God was simultaneously being displayed. And so when a fallen world, when a lost world captures you, shackles you, takes you before a council of men, tells you to testify, and in the middle of your testimony, you get smacked in the mouth. The question is, how will God's anointed ones respond? We can respond with, touch not my anointed ones, and we'd be right. But do we want to be right, or do we want to be Christ-like? If you want to be Christ-like, when you get smacked in the mouth, you simply say, Father, forgive them. You know who did this? Do you know how this all points back to Paul's story? Do you know who, who did this when he was uh, being stoned to death? Stephen. Stephen, early on in the book of Acts, he's preaching the gospel. They take him, the Jews, they just start stoning him to death. I don't know if you've ever seen a stoning. I've never seen one, but I've seen movie and TV shows that try to replicate it. And it's really dif- difficult to watch. Very difficult to watch a stoning. And they're stoning Stephen. And Stephen says, doesn't say, it is written, touch not my anointed ones. No, Stephen says, It's right here. Um, pretty much it says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I mean, pretty much. Pretty much, Jesus, Stephen did what Jesus did. And guess who was there to see that? A young man named Saul. He didn't just watch a stoning that day. He saw Christ in Stephen. And I guarantee you that that did not leave Saul's memory. He's seeing someone getting stoned to death. And Stephen had the face of an angel. Later on, when Saul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, And he was converted. I'm sure that he, the, the, the blood and the testimony of Stephen, the demonstration of faith and love and mercy of Stephen was what helped make the mercy of God and the love of Christ that much more real to Paul. So later on, he's on trial, gets struck in the mouth. 
And he says, you whitewash wall. And they say, you, you revile God's high priest. And he says, I'm sorry. I didn't know. It is written, you shall not revile God's authorities. We are his anointed ones because of the anointed one. Amen? Amen. Vengeance is something that does not belong to us. No matter how much wrong and wickedness and evil that we are at in the hands of men on the earth. God calls us to respond with the voice of Christ. Do you want to release simply justice onto the earth? Justice in the terms of condemning and displaying the wrath of God, which is a good thing. Don't get me wrong. It's it's not a bad thing. Or do we want to see the mercy of God on display? Because once once Christ returns, once the end finishes up, the time of mercy is over. Judgment day has passed. All right, let's let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much, God, that you are so abundant in mercy, goodness toward each and every one of us, Lord. And we thank you that, God, that you guard over our soul, our safety, our health. If there be anyone that strikes us, You say to a lost world, touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. But Father, just without just ending there, we also want to say, Lord, I know what they've done is wrong. But God, as a recipient of grace, as a recipient of mercy, I also choose to display your mercy, to display your grace. In the face of wickedness, in the face of violence, I choose mercy, God. Because Jesus, you chose mercy. When you were struck in the mouth repeatedly, when you were crowned with a crown of thorns, when you were nailed upon the cross, when you were whipped for our healing, you chose mercy, God. You chose mercy, Jesus. And Lord God, I just pray that in each and every one of us, Christ will be alive. That Christ will be living. That no matter what hardships or wrongs we face in life, we will choose forgiveness and mercy all the way until we see your face, Lord. And we just thank you that you've anointed us to preach this good news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.